This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for a good one. Today, we've got Bilal Zabiri from Lux Capital to discuss his investments in transformational science and technology companies. As I've been told by many respected investors, Bilal has some of the best insights on moats and how startups create sustainable, defensible, competitive advantages. In light of that, we go deep on the topic and hear how he applies it through his investing. In this episode, we cover an overview of moats, types of moats, example companies with moats, how to build a monopoly from the outset, and if Bilal requires this in startups he invests in. Incremental versus step change innovation and the implications on the breadth and depth of the moat. Bilal's take on data and network effect-based moats, using a business model as a moat. Bilal's thoughts on building brand as a sustainable competitive advantage. How NPS score plays a role. An example where Bilal thought there was a moat, but it proved not to have the defensibility predicted. And finally, I get Bilal's take on Lux's investment strategy, their portfolio, and how they're building value in the water, on the ground, in the air, and even up in space. Big thanks to Ty Finley for suggesting Bilal and making the connection. Here's the interview with Bilal Zabiri of Lux Capital. Bilal Zabiri joins us today from San Francisco. Bilal is a partner at Lux Capital. Lux invests in emerging science and technology ventures at the outermost edges of what is possible. Bilal leads Lux's investments in AirMap, Desktop Metal, Evolve Technology, Sci-Fi Works, LensBricks, Noon, Orbital Insight, Super, Cloud Medics, Veo Robotics, and a few stealth startups. Prior to Lux, Bilal was founder of Geo2, an advanced materials company, a consultant for BCG, and also an investor for General Catalyst. Bilal, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So tell us the story. I mean, you've had lots of different experiences as an entrepreneur and a consultant and, of course, an investor even before Lux. So can you kind of walk us through your journey into venture? Well, the story begins in Pakistan, which is where I was born and grew up and did my high school. Came to the U.S. to study, did my undergrad in physical sciences, wanted to do something interesting, creative, and make a lot of money doing that. So during my PhD days, got interested in the startup world. BCG provided a nice six to nine month window for me to get paid while I figured out what the startup is going to be. And that (laughs) became Geo2. And um, so I started that company around 2004. We built that up. And in 2008, you know, it was commercialized with automotive technologies getting licensed out to a major tier one supplier to the automotive industry. And we spun out a biomedical device company 
along the way, I had been helping a bunch of VCs think about VC investments in deep technology. And one of those was a good friend of mine who's a partner at General Catalyst who invited me to hang out with him. And that hangout, when I met with him, became a, why don't you just join us and become a VC? And, you know, it felt like a good opportunity to both not make the mistakes I made, but also help other entrepreneurs sort of accelerate their companies in ways that I'd learned after sort of four years of working on on a startup myself. So I started my VC career in Boston, where I was at General Catalyst helping build out their deep tech practice. And then in 2013, I moved to the West Coast when friends of mine who were founders at Lux Capital asked me to join them as a partner and help them build out their West Coast practice. And here we are, you know, Lux uh, is now a much bigger firm in terms of the capital under management. We have very exciting things that we've been working on, and I'm super excited to be a part of the team here. Awesome. Yeah, and how big is is the firm in terms of AUM and sort of what, what stage and, and focus areas do you have? Yeah, so so Lux manages now over a billion dollars. We are investing out of a $450 million fund that we raised earlier this year. We invest in breakthrough science technology startups, so science fiction becoming science fact in our own lives. That typically means a lot of hardware, software, biotech, you know, sort of big, hard problems that would improve the lives of people as well as address very large markets. We typically invest at the Series A stage with some very select Series B investments, and we do have a seed investment program as well. So think of us as sort of early stage investors who then continue to invest at every stage of the company afterwards. And, you know, a lot of those early checks can be as little as a few hundred thousand dollars in a seed investment to usually, you know, five to eight million dollars when we first invest. Got it. And then do you have a particular focus area at Lux? So Lux is based in half the team is in New York City and the other half is based here in Menlo Park. That said, all of us invest across the entire country and across uh, most sectors. So we, you know, while we do have some personal preferences, we are generalists. So we don't have one guy doing biotech, another one doing computational imaging, and a third one doing robotics. My investments have tended to focus a lot more on a general thesis around availability of distributed sensors on various platforms and the availability of very large amounts of data that uh, can be analyzed using the you know, modern techniques in data analytics and machine learning and AI to provide insights and then closed loop systems for large industries. So think of very, very large industries that in the past have basically worked on either very simple data analytics or mostly on human intuition and now getting transformed by the availability of real-time data, both streaming data as well as analyzed information. So in companies that are working on physical security, doing that, protecting us against bombs and guns and so on. I have companies that are scanning the earth from the space to the drones in the air and then home security stuff and computational imaging broadly. Love it. Love it. About half of our investments are in the, the IoT and connected device segment. So um, I think this should be an interesting talk here. So can you talk through one of your first investments at Lux and how it kind of represents this thesis of distributed sensors and data? Yeah. So uh, my first investment at Lux, actually, my first investment in Lux is actually a co-investment that I did literally while at General Catalyst and transitioning into Lux. So both funds invested together alongside Bill Gates. And it's a company called Evolve Technology. 
And Evolve uses, you know, advanced distributed sensors for anti-terrorism activities. So um, think of sensors that can enable facilities to protect themselves against gunmen, against bombs, against other kinds of explosives. So this is an interesting one because obviously this is the unfortunate reality in our lives where we're seeing terrorism attacks on a rise and in, in fact increasingly, most importantly, attacking soft targets. You know, it's no longer just high value targets, but ordinary churches and synagogues and, and malls are, are under attack. Yeah. And um, when you think about terrorism becoming in some ways distributed, right, and decentralized, you have to have anti-terrorist and physical security apparatus and mechanisms that are also distributed and decentralized. But unfortunately, that has not been the case in the past. So we became very good after 9-11 in protecting our airports, but those are centralized places. But we don't yet have a technology that quickly, cheaply allows us to protect soft targets. And that's what Evolve is focused on. And utilizing both proprietary sensors, this is millimeter wave detection of um, bombs and weapons and guns, etc., but also other things in, in computational imaging and machine vision, machine learning, to understand people's behavior and understand where the threat may be arising and then obviously diffuse it quickly. Who are the, the customer categories and in, in the, the client sets? Well, just this past weekend, my one of my partners, Adam Kalish, was at a Bruce Springsteen concert on Broadway, and he walked through Evolve security scanners that were scanning all the people coming through and protecting that that space. So no think way. of concert venues, think of uh, you know Lincoln Center in New York City. You go there and you'll see Evolve technology. But frankly, you know it's being used in places that you wouldn't normally think is required, right? So. Think of sports stadiums. They have a big need because, you know, tons of people walk through, you know, within a very short space of period of time. So you need technology that is very effective, but it's also really fast. So the airport type scanners where you stand there for 10 seconds or five seconds while it scans you, it just doesn't work. So those are the kinds of, you know, everyday venues that Evolve is being used at. Awesome. Even the boss needs some security, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even more so. So you and I have had some good discussion previously about your thesis and your investments and sort of investing with moats in mind. For some of our newer listeners, could we start out with sort of a description of sustainable competitive advantages, defensibility, and essentially the moat in venture? So this is something that's you know definitely very important to our firm, that we invest in companies where they're able to build a protective moat around their proprietary technology or, or asset base. Now, often it tends to be IP, it tends to be your, 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 your product and wrapped around what all included in the product. But there are many other ways that you can build a moat in your business as well. And we believe in investing in these businesses because we want to be addressing very large markets, but not with 15 to 20 other competitors going after the same way, after the same market with only slightly differentiated products. We like situations where you can, you know, if you solve the problem, which may be a very hard problem, and it may require a lot of technological prowess, maybe even regulatory hurdles and otherwise to get there. But if you solve that problem, you will get rewarded for it because the market is open for you. And you will have some but little competition. This is something that, you know, of course, you know, in the in the world of biotech and others where you had individual compounds and the chemistries that you could patent was very well understood. 
But I think as we're starting to see technology, we're into everyday life where we have autonomous systems, we have robotics, we have automation across our life. I think it's becoming very important to realize that, recognize that, and build those moats. Now, in some industries, these moats are easier to build. You know, if you have a regulatory barrier, for example, and you're able to build a team that can manage that, if you have an international market with the complexity of selling, that's very, you know, somewhat easier to understand, but very important for the companies. Or you have businesses where military and government can be a very early customer, but very difficult to work with and difficult to understand how to best work with them. But if you figure that out, you can actually give your company a serious competitive advantage that other companies would not have. Now, I contrast these companies with these with these important moats to, you know, the traditional consumer internet ideas, right? Sort of social networking or, you know, photo sharing and photo filter companies. There, I think you build a moat much later on as you start building a larger network and the network effects start to play uh, towards you. But otherwise, it's been harder to do that in many of the other industries. We tend to focus a lot more on industries where it's definitely possible and definitely where the CEOs and the founders are really focused on having that competitive advantage. So at the very beginning, when you're making an early stage investment or analyzing a company, prospective portfolio company, are you asking yourself if that company will have a monopoly within their segment, assuming they, they achieve success in their objectives? Yeah. So there's obviously every decision is very unique and independent, but here's a general thing you go through, right? So the number one thing you focus on is the team and, you know, is there a competitive advantage there? Just take a simple example as consumer electronics product. There are very few people in this world, I would argue, who truly know how to build and ship a new consumer electronics product. I mean, there's a reason why Apple companies like Apple are able to consistently do that, and many startups fail at that. So if you have a team that has done that before, has the relationships with the ODMs abroad, and understand the product marketing focus that consumer electronics companies need, that's a very interesting mode that's very hard to actually build. So that you know focuses on the team side of competitive advantage. But then you have technology and product. Wait, this is this a product that's truly differentiated? We're not interested in incremental solutions. We're not interested where some minor tweak on the business model may or may not provide you with with a competitive advantage. And then, and last but not the least, the very important question is that, okay, so, you know, startups are hard and we're going to do the hard work. Our entrepreneurs are going to spend, you know, five, 10 years of their life building it. Will they be rewarded at the end? And I think if you're building something that can be commoditized over the over that period, then it is very hard to make a justification that this is a VC-worthy investment. We look at these companies and we say, if they can continue to be ahead of the game and continue to have a differentiated offering over a long period of time, then I think they will get rewarded, whether it's in the private markets or the public markets. Yeah. Do you have an example of maybe a, an incremental versus a step change innovation, maybe addressing a similar problem in a similar domain, but you know, one that illustrates sort of the value of the moat that you get out of a revolutionary or big step change innovation? Well, I mean, you know, I can give you out of my portfolio or give you outside our portfolio. Within our portfolio, I'll give you an example of a company like Desktop Metal, uh, which is in metal 3D printing. Uh, Now, metal 3D printing has been available for, you know, maybe a decade or two. But the problem is that it has, it's a very well understood technology space, but the way it has been addressed 
addressed is uh, using systems that are extremely expensive, close to a million dollars. They require certain kinds of facilities, uh, you know, require gaseous environments. So you basically build a building around the machine that you buy and it costs another million dollars or more. But it was accepted that that's the way things are done and whatever. It's the cost of doing business. You spend million, $2 million, and now you have a metal printer available to you. Desktop metal comes in and completely changes all of that, right? So there's obviously four faculty members that are co-founders of that company, tremendous amount of IP on completely doing the processes in a different way that you can now put a metal 3D printer in your office. Literally, my office with a 120-volt plug can be used for that. And that's where you were seeing, you know, this this company is, you know, they've announced their product earlier this year. They've announced a second product now. Tremendously interesting book of business that they have already because they've completely changed the game. They've completely changed the game on what was possible with metal 3D printing and who could use it. So now you and I prototyping um, product in our office could be using metal 3D printers to do that. I think this is the kind of space where if you don't have that kind of an advantage, then small advantage would be very hard to sustain for a long period of time. And frankly, competing with the incumbents that have been around and have deep relationships with a customer set that you'll be working with, it'd be very hard to knock them out. Got it. So to take a step back, you talked about data-centric moats, IP, you talked about network effects, regulatory, and, and even team-based can you kind of present an overview of the different types of moats as you think about them, maybe from a category standpoint? Yeah, there's a few of them that that quickly come to mind. Of course, the first and the foremost one that, you know, is very obvious and easy to diligence is the one around the technology and the product. A lot of that has to do with the innovation. A lot of that has to do with the IEP that's built around it. You know, we often joke that a lot of our companies, by the way, have, you know, the founding team includes, you know, very serious researchers and people who've spent, you know, 10, 20 years of their life sometimes longer, working on those problems, and then finally found the breakthrough that allowed them to commercialize that. Right. But, you know, it, we, we joke that, you know, they spent half their life learning what the state of the art of science is and learning all the basic rules. And then the rest of the half of their life, they spend sort of disproving them and creating new rules, right? Sort of, you know, as we joke that, you know, they're sort of in really inventing the future and sometimes, you know, questioning the fundamental laws of physics. So when you do that, if you're not wrong, and if you're not crazy, you are actually onto something really big and you can protect it with IP. The second kind of moats are around the industries that you're disrupting. So, you know, finding a, you know, if, if this is a company that requires a certain kind of regulatory approval, it is pretty hard to do. And only those that are truly passionate and a true believer in the ability of their technology to change the game would actually go through those. Now, whether it's the FDA type clearance when you're talking about the medical technologies or you're talking about the FAA and other type of clearances, Department of Transportation type clearances, or trying to sell internationally when you have to get certain permissions, you know, the UL equivalent certifications. These are not easy things for people people to get, and they allow you to build moats. A third type of moat that's very important, in my opinion, and often gets overlooked is the team composition. You know, the kind of problems that we get attracted to are considered hard technical problems, but they're also hard business problems. Often you're dealing with very complex set of customers, large incumbents, slow moving industries where innovation is not necessarily welcomed, open armed. So, you know, the ability to maneuver in those spaces while keeping your startup pace alive is actually a very 
very unique trait that very few people have. And in fact, we talk about it often as, uh, you know, we say in the startup world that, you know, if you see a rocket ship, you should jump on it. You know, we like to refer to good performing startups as rocket ships. Well, one of the things about rocket ships is that they have very high acceleration as they get off the ground, right? They, they move at fastest speeds at that time. And when you're dealing with incumbents that are large, when you're dealing with slow moving customers, trying to maintain that pace is hard. And, you know, certain entrepreneurs are able to do that. Either they have tricks up their tr- their sleeve or the innovation is so big that they're able to find their way around it or they create partners out of competitors to be able to get to the market faster. If you take a sum total of these strategies, you're creating a very powerful defensive position that is very hard for, you know, a new kid on the block to go up against you. And I think that allows these kinds of companies to build not only a lot of momentum, but in the long term, a very large market cap for themselves. Where do network effects fit in? What sort of category are they a part of? Or is that kind of its own category? No, network effects are actually quite important. Now, of course, the ones we traditionally talk about is the the classic network effect and social networking, where every you know the, the value of the network grows as every new node gets put into it. Yep. But it's not just relevant for social networking, Facebook type websites as well. It's very relevant for our industries as well. You know, and think of the Internet of Things. The more units you put on, the more value you get. I use a simple example that out of computational imaging that we're seeing being used in everything from the cameras we use to home security systems. You know, in our own life, we probably used to have 15, 20, 30 years ago, one camera per family, and it would come out at special events. You would take some photos and you'd print them, develop them and share with the family. Then digital cameras came out and all of us could afford one for two, three hundred dollars. So all of us had a camera. Then camera phones came out and suddenly we had two or three cameras per person. So today I have a camera on my laptop, on my iPad, on my phones, you know, a couple of home security cameras. So I have, you know, maybe, you know, five, six cameras per person. Very soon in our own lifetime, we will see the number of cameras per person going from this small number to maybe tens or hundreds of cameras per person. Wow. The utility of that network is that at that point, the cameras are not taking photos for us to look at and, and smile. They're taking photos for machines to analyze, and they're essentially analyzing every aspect of our life now with all the privacy considerations in place. But they're really trying to figure out what is happening around us that even we may not be aware of. And all these cameras are talking to each other. All these sensors are pulling their data together and increasingly so at the edge, sort of sending instructions to each other on what to look out for. Right. So if you're thinking of a physical security system, this becomes an extremely powerful network where you're no longer at a mall with a security guard sitting with eight camera screens and screens in front of him and trying to figure out if anything bad is happening. But you have a powerful network of sensors that's all communicating with via machines to each other, analyzing the information and quickly focusing the resources on where they see some anomaly happening. And that's how I think the future systems will be. And in that kind of a setup, the network effects are extremely important. The more you know sensors you put onto the network, the more intelligence you get. And frankly, the entire network becomes smarter. Right. Yet some time ago, I, I wrote an article that I think I called data as a network effect. And I was talking about how, you know, it's slightly intimidating almost that some of these tech companies like the Googles, the Facebooks, even Netflix, I cited as an example of using data as a network effect and even being able to predict your interests and your wants and your needs to a degree beyond what you could predict for yourself and how this their hoarding of data and their consolidation of data is making it very difficult for any consumer to sort of uh, 
unplug from their platforms. Yeah, and I think you're increasingly, you know, seeing that uh, spill over into our physical world as well. So, you know, all of us now seem to have an Amazon Alexa at home, yep. right? So what you're starting to see is that, you know, you started with one device. In some ways, it didn't do very much, right? Like it basically played songs for you, which you could have played with your phone. And it kind of told you what the weather was, which you had Siri on your phone. But it was, you know, simplification and, and made very easy to use by everybody. Yep. But you're starting to see how the network effect grow, where you have now Pretty much every consumer hardware device coming out is almost required in some ways to be Alexa compatible, unless it's a device by one of Alexa's competitors. And you're seeing all these systems kind of communicate with each other. So you'll have light switches, door locks, camera systems that are all communicating with each other over Alexa and communicating, you know, and sending data to each other that can be used. So if the camera system recognizes that there might be an intruder outside or some shady looking person outside, immediately the door lock checks that, you know, am I locked phase or not? And perhaps even the security alarm goes off. And that could be actually a Alexa type method for you to talk to each other. Amazing. And talk to that person outside. Amazing. Yeah, I also wanted to get your take on sort of business model as a moat. You know, you mentioned sort of sensor systems and, you know, often you can have sort of hardware incorporated into a business model. Uh, you could have a razor razor blade business model, which kind of increases stickiness and attachment of customers. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if you think the business model itself can be structured to sort of create a moat. And if so, is that sustainable? Yeah, so I think this is increasingly becoming more important. You know, some people are calling it in our world the hardware as a service model, but often it's misunderstood. But but I think there are interesting effects of that. So, of course, in our own life, we've seen just in the last few years how, you know, our car ownership equation has completely changed because of a change in the business model, right? So it's no longer about owning a car. It's about transportation and mobility. And in fact, you're seeing companies like Ford not calling them an automotive company anymore, but calling themselves a mobility company because they're realizing that the business that they're in is moving people from point A to point B or goods from point A to point B Crazy. rather than selling a vehicle to us. Yeah. I think the same thing, you know, in a very different way is happening around, you know, industries that we've invested in, for example, in, in space and satellites. You know, Digital Globe used to have earth imaging satellites, high resolution satellites, few of them, and the government essentially bought their entire capacity and would then share with others. And and in some ways, you could position these satellites to look where the government wanted them to spend more time looking. And that has completely changed as companies like Planet and others have come in where they've put constellations of satellites in the space. And you no longer buy satellite time, but you're essentially buying data. A company in our own portfolio called Sail Drone is the same idea that you have these autonomous ocean-going drones that collect incredible amounts of data that otherwise would cost you on a ship thirty to $70,000 a day to collect they're collecting it for a fraction of that cost. But instead of you just, you know, sort of taking ownership of one of those boats and using it where you want them to be, they, were, they have a network of these autonomous drones across the world and you buy the data and you buy the insights. Now, when that happens, it's not only that it's easier to, of course, the, it's easier to buy because you're not making a capital expense decision, but it's an OPEX decision and it's easier for you to calculate your ROIs. But it's also that you're really tying into that company's intelligence, right? So you're no longer just a hardware provider, but you start thinking about how will your customers be using this information and what intelligence and insights they're looking for. So there's a greater partnership between the vendor and the buyer. 
And I think it creates a very interesting mode because it becomes much harder for these companies to get off of that because, you know, you're no longer just buying a car, but you're actually really built, you know, your own systems are built on top of the data networks that these companies are providing to you or data streams that these companies are providing to you. Sure. And if you're providing ongoing value or if the company is providing ongoing value to the consumer, something I like to talk about is how at the point of sale, that's the beginning of the relationship between the company and the consumer, a long-term value exchange, right? Whereas, you know, old school shelfware in the software category or gadgets in the hardware category, the point of sale was sort of the end of the value exchange between, between a company and consumer. Yeah, the one-time sale model is a really tough one for venture capitalists. Right? Even though we started there, you know, we sold computers and then we maybe sold some services with it. And then we had a upgrade cycle that we would come back and try to sell you the newer model. It's very hard. It's unpredictable. It, it's, it has a cyclicality to it. You're partly dependent on, you know, your customers' own capital spend cycles, but partly dependent on the, how the economy is doing. And I think all of that is rapidly changing, in my opinion, where as you said, that the relationship begins when you make the sale. And frankly, there's a very quick iterative process by which the vendor or the supplier actually learns how your customer is using the information that you're providing to them. So you can actually build that into your own product development cycle. And even for what would be considered very hardware companies, there's no, I mean, unless you're selling an ironing stand anymore, almost all hardware has a lot of software included with it. And, you know, as more and more software becomes more and more important for these hardware companies, those quicker iteration cycles working in close collaboration with the customers is really important. And we're seeing many of our customers benefit from that. And it's across industries. You know, it's, as I mentioned, it's satellite companies, it's drone companies, you know, sci-fi, for example, sells drones to government and military and very quick iteration on how people are actually using them in some ways, abusing them that we have to now build into our product so that they can survive those conditions. It's happening in metal 3D printing. It's not just a printer. There's an entire software package and you're starting to learn what kind of designs and techniques we need to provide for people to optimize on their product usage and the product design techniques, all the way to, as I mentioned, in home video monitoring stuff, where it's not about selling you a home video monitor or a security system, but essentially providing you what you really are looking for, which is security as a service. Love it. Love it. And it totally shifts the discussion from being all about customer acquisition and just how do we place products to how do we continue to provide more and more ongoing value over time and uh, increase that curve. But, you know, something I wanted to touch on also was brand. And I know that brand is probably not, you know, a big moat, at least at the point of investment. You know, usually these companies are maybe trying to build a brand, but haven't gotten there yet. But I used to work for a company called Danaher and I did M&A for them. And part of our focus was buying really strong B2B companies that had really strong brands. Um, you know, on the on your BCG matrix, all these would be the, uh, the cash cows that weren't being milked, right? We'd jack up the prices and we'd launch new products and we'd exploit more channels and extract as much value out of these strong brands as possible. So how do you think about brand as a moat, as a venture capitalist and with the companies that you're investing in? Look, anytime you, especially if you're selling to the consumer, the brand becomes really important. Now, it's important if your entire business model is predicated on building a brand, it's a completely different animal. Right. So if you are, you know, selling airline tickets online and, you know, you have to build a brand and hence you have to spend the 50, 100 million dollars plus that might be required to do that. You're running TV ads, magazine ads and all. That's a very different kind of a brand building exercise. Or if you're selling a commodity product, a new brand of tissue papers out there that may be incrementally better. I think even on harder tech products, 
entrepreneurs are realizing how important brand is. And, and the reason is that people want even their you know, sort of very technically sophisticated products to be aspirational products. In some ways, the iPhones of the world have changed that for everybody, or even right. before that, the Apples of the world, right? Just the idea that you are buying something that has an aspirational value associated with it is really important because people anticipate now that I'm buying what I'm buying now, but I'm essentially buying into something bigger than that. You know, the over-the-air updates, the OTAs, as they're called now, it is no longer something that people just talk about and very few companies do. Almost all hardware products are now built with that because the customer understands that if I'm buying into a particular brand, I will get this kind of feature update and you know this, this delight that I will continue to get. It's not a once and done thing. And I think those brands become extremely important. Look at all the companies that have, you know, those of us who do deep tech investing look at as success stories like the Tesla, the Nest, the SpaceX, the Oculus, the STEM centrics of the world. They're almost, you know, household names, even though they're selling products that are not necessarily house should be household names. You know, Tesla is not a product for average American. It's an extremely expensive product, even though they want to make it available to everybody. But certainly SpaceX is not, you know, or STEM centrics is not. But they had to build strong brands because it's not just about a recognition, but it also sends a message of what this company stands for, what this company stands for in terms of its value prop to the end user, what it stands for in terms of its innovation capabilities, and what it stands for in terms of its understanding of where the technology world is headed. And so definitely companies that are able to get into that zeitgeist and, and are able to capture the imagination of people do well. It's not enough. Your product still has to deliver. But if you're able to build a brand, you certainly create a lot of value for your venture investors and for your shareholders. Because companies, when they're getting bought, are also given a lot of value, especially when you're addressing very large and common industries that, hey, if I buy this company, not only do I get this great team and I get this great technology with very early revenues, I actually get to tell my entire shareholder base that I am buying this hot stuff that will allow me to really take a step function in how I think about myself and the customers and how the customers think about me. And your ability to bring that to a customer is actually pretty important. Super wide and deep mode. Right. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal -deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. 
Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. So are you looking at NPS scores for prospective investments or any other advanced brand-oriented customer satisfaction metrics? So often we invest in at a time when the product is not even launched yet. Ah. So in that sense, at the time of investment, no, but certainly when the product (laughs) launches, it becomes extremely important, especially for any product that's consumer focused, but not only consumer focused. In some ways, it also says a lot about the management team. Who do they put first? Is this a management team that's driven by satisfying their customer base and addressing their customer base's problems? Or is this a tech-first team that has a widget and looking for somebody to use it? I strongly believe in backing teams that are mission-driven, but their mission is to actually solve some important problem in the world. An important problem is usually with the customer who's going to pay. And hence, they have to have a very close relationship and eye on how the customers, the end users, could be a business enterprise or a consumer, is actually thinking about their solutions, what kind of feedback they're getting, and how quickly is this company responding to that. It's amazing. Do you see your founding team spending a significant amount of time with customers to make sure they're fully understanding that and how best to fulfill the mission? 100%. And in fact, increasingly so even more. I mean, look, you know, our teams tend to be very technical, and this is not something that comes naturally to them. Many of them did not attend business school classes and think about NPS scores in their 101 (laughs) classes, but they're starting to appreciate, understand, and technical founders are realizing that this is really important. And in some ways, I would argue that if I look back, what has changed over, I've been investing now for roughly 10 years, what has changed from 10 years ago, hardware investing to now is a much greater appreciation among the founders and the entrepreneurs that it is not only the technology that wins. It's actually the solution that you provide to a customer's problem that wins. Your technology may be a really, really important part of that, but you've got to solve the end problem, which is why you saw that 10 years ago, there was a lot more component-based investing happening where, okay, you know, here's my little chip or my little device that actually does the most important thing. And people would build that and then would hope that they would get picked up because this is the most important component. Turns out, as some others have called it, this full stack kind of companies were more relevant and important and venture worthy because there you could actually show the end customer by using your core technology, but building the right solution around it. You could tell the end customer and be closer to them to first tell them that I'm solving your problem, but more importantly, also that let's go develop the solution together because often the customer is also learning in that process by using your solution what their needs really are or how they're changing. So is a a moat a requirement for an investment that you guys make or multiple of these moats that we've talked about, whether it be, you know, IP or product or team or any of the others? Look, I'm sure we've made some exceptions. <laughs> if an amazing entrepreneur walks through the door, sometimes you're just backing the team. You're just basically saying, this guy is amazing. He's going to do something amazing or she's going to build some amazing company and we don't know exactly where, but let's back them up. You know, Even we've had entrepreneurs and residents to do that. But I think by and large, if you look at the success stories in venture, especially in the deep tech space, those modes have been really important. If you don't have that, so let's assume you're the genius that discovered a very large market that nobody else had discovered and you start making some headway in there and you don't have a moat. Guess what? Other people, even if they may not be genius enough to recognize this 
on their own. Once they see you making headway, once they see you raising capital from good investors, when they see you getting customers, they will come there, right? Not only new startups will get formed in that space, other VCs who could not invest in you will invest in competitors or create competitors, and large companies will start putting some R&D resources to, hey, we should have something happening in this space too. Suddenly, this genius idea that you had is now being attacked by all kinds of companies and either it'll be margin pressure or your exits are problematic or you're dealing with talent crunch where you know the same talent is now divided over 10 different companies. It becomes much harder to build a very large company unless you have a protective mode that keeps most of the competition out. Some may still get in and competition is a healthy thing, but too much competition is great for the for the customer, but it may actually suck for a venture investment. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to put you on the spot a little bit here and cite any example. It doesn't have to be in the portfolio, but do you have an example of a situation where maybe a tech company thought it had a moat, like a broad and deep moat, but ultimately didn't have the defensibility that they thought and were disrupted and lost a bunch of their value? Ah. Uh. <laughs> Well, I'll name this company because, you know, a lot has changed in this company now. But, you know, I looked at the early stage uh, rounds at a company called MakerBot, which was the among the early pioneers of plastic 3D printing. And I went in and the company was early on in essentially figuring out how to put plastic 3D printers almost like a paper laser printer on your desktop. So everybody could have access to that. I think it was a very interesting goal. I think they were very early. Certainly, they were visionaries in that space. I ended up, you know, we chose not to invest. And we chose not to invest because we didn't see the moat that they thought they had. So they thought they were ahead of the game. They thought they had IP. When we looked around, it didn't feel like that to us. And then, of course, I, in some ways, they got a venture exit and they were bought by a large company, Stratasys. But we saw what happened within the next two, three years of this company getting founded. We've had dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, 3D printing companies, plastic 3D printing companies that got created. The pricing pressure was huge. In some ways, they had to get out of that business because it was just, in some ways, impossible to build a large business that was a standalone business. This is a place where very interesting idea, very relatively early to the market being a visionary, but not having the right kind of modes, either on the team or on the technology side that allowed them to build a very large business. Now, they were still able to do a great job. They evangelized this product, brought it to market, and frankly, essentially created the 3D printing market, at least for the venture capital world. But yeah, I think that would have been had that company had or companies of that sort had had a lot of IP protection around it they could have built a standalone multi-billion dollar business. Cool. Yeah. So as I'm looking across your portfolio right now, I'm I'm noticing uh, you've got water applications, ground, air, space. I mean, it seems like you're covering the entire altitude stack, for lack of a better term. Uh, can you kind of talk about the way you think about this and the way that you're building out this portfolio? Yeah, so it's an interesting realization that we've had. It wasn't planned that way. But I think what you're referring to is that we have companies like Planet and Orbital Insight that are in the space, literally with satellites in space that are imaging the Earth and analyzing that imagery for a very large number of markets from oil and gas to commodity brokers to hedge funds. Then you have the drone industry where we have a bunch of investments where, again, these are eyes in the sky that are providing intelligence from military to government to commercial customers and increasingly so thinking about drone delivery processes as well. Then you have 
autonomous vehicles on land. So you have companies like Zooks and Ava and others that are focused on bringing autonomous capabilities to land-based vehicles. And then the same thing, as I mentioned earlier, sail drone company and autonomous drones on sailing on the ocean and collecting data. There's a lot of commonalities across this. Number one is that we talked earlier about distributed sensors that are internet connected, real-time analytic capabilities that if you close the loop, it becomes an autonomous system. That is happening across all of these. So these are autonomous systems operating in, in their own domains and collecting data, sharing that data, and the data is getting analyzed. The second thing that's happening is what has happened in the world of machine vision, machine learning, and AI has enabled data sets to be analyzed not only on their own, but also combined with other data sets and deep learning techniques used to extract insights from it. So that has created the multiplication effect for these industries. So satellite imagery can be coupled with the drone imagery for providing high-density, high-resolution maps of land that can be used by autonomous vehicles, as just as an example. Or data collected from satellites can be blended with the data that's collected from the oceans to create the new climate models and the weather models, for example. So a lot of interesting things happening. And also, it's having ramifications in the supply chain as well. So the LIDAR systems that used to cost fifty to $100,000 because they were developed for research purposes are obviously now down to a few hundred dollars being used for automotive applications. But the same LIDAR systems are being put now onto drones for doing agricultural mapping applications. And will increasingly, we'll see, you know, hyperspectral type, which are also laser-based scanning systems, put onto satellites for looking through the cloud. So even on a cloudy day, you can get measurements of smokestacks and chimneys and, and agricultural output. So there's vendors that were providing to one of these industries are now finding that they are, these are common, they're platform commonalities that they can now go across industries and provide services to them. Amazing. Amazing. Bilal, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Gosh. Well, you know, one question that I think about quite a bit, and you know, I've been thinking about this here at Lux since I've joined here as well, is we think of successful deep tech companies as examples, Tesla, Nest, SpaceX, Oculus, etc. One thing is very interesting there, right? None of these companies got even to their first dollar of revenue before they had raised at least $100, $200 million, right? So these were capital-intensive companies. Wow. Now, the mantra around Silicon Valley is, oh, you got to be capital light and, you know. But these companies, you know, Tesla is worth, what, $50 billion now? Nest was a $3 billion exit. SpaceX, again, billions. Oculus was $2 billion exit. Stemcentrics, you know, tens of billions of dollars. They were terrific, some of the best venture capital returns in Silicon Valley. But they were solving very hard problems. They're the kinds of companies Lux Capital invests in, but they take capital and they take patient capital because you don't have revenues in the traditional metrics of LTVs and customer acquisition costs and NPS scores and so on. So what are the best practices for evaluating these companies, not only at the earliest stage when you first invest, but if you get opportunities to invest in this company along the way? How would you evaluate those companies? I think it's a topic that Silicon Valley avoids, frankly. And uh, I would love to be a part of that discussion. I'd love to learn more about that. We're constantly learning it at Lux. And as I said, over the years, it keeps changing as more and different kinds of capital flows into Silicon Valley. I love it. Love it. Who would you like to hear speak about that? Who do you think is uh, one of the better investors at doing just that? I mean, look, if some of these companies have some you know, investors that DFJ, for example, it was an investor in Tesla and SpaceX. I think I'd love to hear their thoughts. I think Founders Fund has done some interesting things. I think we are now sitting at a stage where some of my partners have invested in companies that are 
worth a lot. But when we invested, we knew that they would need to raise quite a bit of capital. And one of the things that we do at Lux is reduce the financing risk of our portfolio companies. So there are people who do investment. You know, think of Lux Capital, Data Collective, DFJ, Founders Fund. We do these kinds of investments. And I think we should probably put our brains together and share our learnings and lessons. And hopefully we'll learn a lot along the way ourselves. Bilal, what investor has influenced you most and why? Mm. I'll give you a name that might be considered cliche to some of your audience, but I'll tell you the statement that's on my mind that I think about quite often. So Charlie Munger, obviously he's the, the idea of the moats yep. uh, and, yep. and one of the greatest investors of all times. But there's a quote that's attributed to him, which is, a great business at a fair price is superior to a fair business at a great price. Love that quote. Love it. I think in venture capital... We're looking for the outsized returns. We're looking for the outliers. And sometimes you have to pay up, but it's worth it. And finally, Bilal, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Oh, gosh, I'm extremely public. All my social media is public. (laughs) Um, So I love interacting with people. I learn a lot that way, you know, living in my own Silicon Valley is a bubble and got to get out of that bubble as much as we can. Uh, Twitter is probably the easiest way to reach out to me. One, for it's completely public and B, it has probably had most conversation options in a group. So I'm at BZ Notes and love to get new followers, but more importantly, engage in conversation. You are one of my favorite Twitter follows. So check him out at BZ Notes. He's uh, very interactive and your own quotes, I think, are ones that I like to put on my board. So uh, anyway, thanks so much for taking the time and joining us today. Bilal, I uh, hope to get a chance to connect with you when I'm out in San Francisco and can't wait to publish the interview. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nick. Great talking to you. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening. 